This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. We're back, baby. Today is September 5th, 2023. Hope everyone had a wonderful long Labor Day weekend. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the unequivocal Simon Belanger. You're back. Uh, did, how was your time off? It was I was, good. I was holding down the fort. Yeah, I mean, it was good. I was still doing some stuff for the podcast, as I'm sure you noticed, but uh, it's <laughs> I was going to say, we were on a couple of business meetings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but aside from that, no, it was good. It was kind of bittersweet because our little girl is uh, started daycare over, uh, today. So, oh, daycare. Yeah, yeah, daycare. So a big, uh, quite emotional, especially for mom. But uh, I think it'll get better. It's a progressive integration. All the stuff she'll bring back to the house. Just get ready. Oh, yeah. Well, she's already started. So it's all good. <laughs> Oh, that is too good. Well, I'm glad you're back. The show goes on regardless. Hope people were enjoying some of the interviews. Two, uh, two men I respect very much in Chris Mayer and Barry Schwartz were on the podcast the last two episodes. If you haven't heard them, make sure you tune in. They're, they're great interviews. All right, Simone, we got earnings and news roundup today, uh, as per usual, because this is a Thursday episode. What is your first topic here? I'm this is I don't even know what this is. Um uh, all okay. I know is it looks juicy. Yeah, so it made uh, definitely the headlines. So this one was actually uh tweeted yesterday by Doug Ford. So he uh is basically said on Twitter that he sent a letter to the Bank of Canada, so to Tiff McLean, uh, asking to stop raising interest rate. And that actually followed Dave Ebbies. Uh, I think I'm probably butchering his name, but he's the premier of uh, BC who sent a similar letter over to the Bank of Canada asking them to not do any more rate hikes because it's putting pressure on people and their mortgages and it's also you know hurting businesses which you know uh, dan and i were kind of texting back and forth i find that pretty pretty funny to be honest because you know whatever gripe people might have with the bank of canada um the reality is like they're meant to be uh independent from governments um you can debate that whether that's a good or bad thing or if they're really independent and in when they make their decisions but i think you know it's funny because you have on the one hand and we try not to get political obviously but uh doug ford obviously he's a conservative in ontario and then the premier of bc is actually the ndp so you have kind of opposite spectrum which i find uh, kind of interesting and for me i always take it a little bit of issue there because um if you read the letter and i encourage people to read it it definitely tries to score political points so it's more um you know you you can make your own judgment on the actual letter but it's not really i do question the intentions that's what i'll say uh for these kind of letters and at the end of the day you really want the banks to be independent as possible but i think it also shows that it's a very difficult job that the central banks have right now and tiff mcclain and there are competing things and they only have a limited set of tools at their disposal. So um, they're, you know, I'll be honest, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, that should be like the job description. Yeah. <laughs> for, for being the chair. Like your, your office is literally a, 
like you, you literally sit between like a wall and a giant rock and then they put your office chair right in the middle there just to anecdotally <laughs> yeah. let you know that this is what you're in for. No, exactly. And I think it just reflects, I mean, I think there's a lot of people hurting for housing right now. I know Dan has been a bit advocate of that for several years now. It's nothing new for him. Uh, but I think it also shows that I think all level of governments, uh, private businesses as well, they need to work uh, together. And one thing that I'll, I'll talk about a bit later is that the housing starts are actually uh, dropping unfortunately because yeah. it's not profitable for builders to build condo houses whatever it is and people can say what they want but at the end of the day they do need some expectation of profit right they're not in you know they're not going to build something if they're sure they're going to lose money on it no they're not charities and if if housing starts are decreasing i mean <laughs> it's a it's a pretty simple math equation right here that, that we've gotten ourselves into. And a decline in housing starts is certainly not a an indicator you want to see to to get us out of the problem. Yeah. And any kind of new measure too, I think it's important for people to remember, you know, people can blame governments all they want and that's fine. You know, you, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but any kind of measure will take most likely you know, several quarters, if not several years to actually see the benefits from it. Right. So I think people also have to make sure that they have realistic expectations. There might be some really good policies that come into effect in the next year or two. Uh, I don't know if there will be, but I'm just saying like that. And even if there are good policies, the results probably won't be seen for several years down the line just because it takes time. The last roughly half of the show we'll go through Canadian bank earnings. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean neither of us have been particularly bullish on Canadian banks in the past maybe 5ish years, which has probably been the right call uh given their performance. But the quarters that just came out, especially from a few of them, were particularly alarming. Oh yeah. Um yeah. And and, and we're we're going to get to that, but you know, I, I, I'm usually pretty optimistic with these kinds of things and, and especially the Canadian banks, even though I've had no intention of owning any of them, uh, for a long time now. And this is why, uh, we're about to see it. And there's just so many things out of, out of my expertise to be able to predict and, and, and for anyone to predict, uh, <laughs> for that matter. All right. Let's do an update on private markets. And VC in Canada, a bit, bit of a different segment for us today. You know, we s exclusively pretty much talk about private companies, both with folks on Canada, but across the globe. I mean, we probably talk more about U U.S. businesses than than not. Would you call Canada the uh, what the Silicon Valley of the North? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be a bit of a stretch. Bit of a stretch. Uh, okay, okay, for sure. That being said. I'm going a little outside of the, the topic here. This is a really, really good place to build tech companies. In my view, uh, I, I, I am slightly biased, but there are a couple of really key things that Canadian entrepreneurs can do and have distinct advantages. One, you have lower salary and wages for high quality tech talent. Like you don't need to pay some X 
Google engineer $300,000 plus stock options to get them on board, which is a distinct advantage. You have something called Shred, which is amazing funding uh, for tech companies. You have something called IRAP, which supports innovative innovative projects here in Canada. So there's lots of like government kind of subsidies and funding. And then, of course, you can charge the whole world in U.S. dollars and then run your business in Canadian dollars and literally build margin from that. That is a distinct advantage for sure. So all of those things come together to actually really compelling growth stories here in Canada. I, I hope that we have more. I hope many come out of this great country because there is a lot of advantages to building companies here. So anyways, this is from the CVCA, which stands for the Canadian Venture Capital Association. Is it the association? Probably. Let's go with yeah, that. Yeah, let's go with that. Canadian, yeah. Let's go with that. So they did a report on the first half of the year, the first half, 2023. And so far, there's been $4 billion invested in venture capital into 335 deals. $2.8 billion was invested across 170 deals during the second quarter, marking the second largest Q2 on record, only surpassed by Q2 of 2021, which is probably globally the peak of VC investments, just gen- generic, generally. I mean, this is the, the height of euphoria, especially with high growth tech. While the number of deals saw a modest 3% increase, the average deal size reached 16.6 million CAD, which highlights investor confidence in supporting significant growth potential. So bit of a rebound a a little bit from a pretty poor end of 2022 in VC. So people are getting a little bit more confident investing in good companies. But it's clear with these check sizes that it's a little bit less speculative. There's lots of seed and lots of pre-seed investments still happening, but not in these just like ideas. There's less people raising on a PowerPoint. That was happening a lot. Now, founders that have had huge exits in the past and like, you know, well-known, they have distribution, they have that track record. Those people can raise on PowerPoint slides still. But not the first time founder, I have a great idea. Uh, it's just it's just a little bit of sign of the, the change of times here. Uh, so IT and communications, so tech, led, led with a $1.8 billion across 84 deals this quarter alone. And a marked focus on AI investments. So <laughs> to the shock of absolutely nobody. Any thoughts here? I mean, I was going to say uh, the AI thing. I do wonder if the AI investment or AI component, there's a little bit of a hype there because I have read a few different things from VCs that there's almost like two different types of deals right now. Um, a lot of VCs kind of choose to overpay in some regards for AI type of businesses. And there's the rest. They can be in tech, but there's not, if they're not really focused on AI, there's, I think there's more emphasis on profitability for those. Whereas AI, there's definitely more leeway. That's what I've read. I mean, you're you're definitely more connected. And I do wonder if people are still able to uh, raise money while playing League of, League of Legends. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I was sitting on that one for a little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah. For those who don't know what we're talking about, it's very well known now that Sequoia Capital, one of the most well-known VC firms, gave Sam Bankman fraud and and his crypto firm there an obscene amount of money. And apparently he pitched them and closed them while playing League of Legends, the very popular computer game, <laughs> which is just... It, it summarizes yeah. the t- that sign of those times extremely well. It's crypto, huge check sizes, no due diligence, and just whatever that was. Yeah, and I think it was also the, the meme round, right? I think it was like 420 million round and 69 or something like that. I know they did a meme round. It's, I mean, some of the stuff coming out of that, I mean, there's going to be a juicy Netflix special on it. That's for sure. It's like, what are we doing here, guys? <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah, absolutely absurd. Now, private equity, I have here, uh, they, they cover this as well in less detail, given that it's mostly focused on VC, but $3.6 billion total invested. So relatively in line, I mean, uh, $4 billion versus $3.6 billion in private equity across 316 deals. So uh, very similar, based on that math, very similar deal sizes and very similar volume between private equity and venture capital. I'd be curious how they like really figured this out. Cause there's so much like angel checks that will never get like in VC. There's so many angel checks that are never actually going to hit this number. So I'd be curious about their methodology. The average deal size declined by 22%, but clean tech saw a huge growth, uh, 116% reflecting a growing focus on climate issues from private equity. Look at the deal size by province. We have more than Quebec is the largest by deal size by more than double. Ontario at 75 and Quebec at 184 deals in uh, the first half of this year. So Quebec being a private equity giant here in the country. Yeah, I I mean, it's interesting. It may be a bit led by the Caisse de Depot de Placement du Québec, which is a big uh, fund pen- or yeah, pension fund manager in Quebec. It could be that. I know, like, I haven't been following Quebec politics as much as because I don't live there anymore. I grew up there, but I know reading a little bit here and there, they've been putting a lot of emphasis on clean tech, I think, especially them amongst all the provinces. So it could be a result of that as well. Yeah, you got to think. I mean, it's a significant amount more in deal size. But yeah, this is a uh, just a very rough overview of, of private markets, VC and private equity here in Canada. We don't touch on it a whole lot, but maybe something we touch on more and more in the future, maybe even another podcast show about it. <laughs> so some stuff in the works and behind the scenes uh, that we're, we're humming and hawing on new ideas for up for another extension of the podcast. We did the real estate one last year. We're thinking about doing another one this year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, for me, for private equity, I'm always kind of when it comes, especially to large institutional investors like pension funds, I'm always a little, uh, let's just say, confused on how they value the private equity. From what I've been reading and hearing is uh, there's a big dis- disconnect right now, especially when it comes to commercial real estate uh, and private equity where um, there's almost no deals being done and there's a really widespread in between what uh, you know sellers are asking for and what buyers are willing to pay. So um, something to keep an eye on. I've been pretty vocal about that where uh, maybe down the line there might be some adjustments to Duro's private equity investment because I think they... Uh, 
they're very hard to value and i think these large institutions tend to value them on the more generous side yeah i think that that's a fair fair characterization all right let's get on to uh some some macro and then into Canadian banks. Yeah, so the, I think it fits well here. So it's Canada GDP. Uh, the figures came out for Q2, and it I think it's a good kind of setup for uh, for the bank earnings because obviously banks are very dependent on how the economy is doing as a whole. So last week, Stats Canada released its GDP figures for June 2023 and Q2, and for June itself, it actually showed a decrease of 0.2 percent. This is a reversal from a positive from 0.2% in May and both figures are annualized here and for Q2 GDP was actually flat as a whole so I think we can safely assume that it is negative in terms of GDP per capita I tried to find the actual data but they don't break in, break in down uh, for Stats Canada per capita but from what I've read a couple of different uh, places it could be negative 2-3% to uh, for Q2 alone so GDP per capita but it just factors in the um, you know high levels of immigration, but immigration in general when you look at uh, capita, because it can be misleading if you let in a lot of people in the country. Um, if GDP is going up, I mean, what would it be if you look at at a person basis? And I think that's a much better indicator of how it's going. Um, so it's it's not great. Housing investment continues to decline despite new government measures, like I just mentioned. Inventories are accumulating at a slower pace, so that is good. Businesses are adjusting here with the surplus that they had over order during the pandemic. Household spending is slowing, but saving rate was actually up. So the saving rate is interesting. I think um, different possibilities here. It could be people kind of tightening the belt because they know, for example, they're renewing their mortgage or they're trying to set a bit more money aside in case something bad happens. So that's an interesting component here. More of a positive, I would say. Business investment was up 2.4% after a year of decline. However, non-financial corporate income dropped for a fourth consecutive quarter. So what this means is businesses that are not financial businesses actually seen their earnings drop for a fourth consecutive quarter in the aggregate. So that's really interesting because when companies do that, um, there's different levers that they'll pull, but sometimes they'll actually increase prices to be able to get that margin up. But when that no longer works and margin starts decreasing, they'll try to cut costs and one of the easiest ways to cut, maybe not easiest, but one of the most obvious ways to do it is reducing headcount. And Royal Bank, which we'll talk about, they actually reduce their headcount and they're looking to reduce it a couple percentage point more. So I know they're not, they are they are a financial business, but I think you're starting to see that. And that's something to be on the lookout for because, I mean, it could impact some of the employment numbers that we see in the upcoming quarters. And and another set of good news is that employee compensation rose 2.2% in the quarter. So, I mean, it's some good and bad. Clearly, the headline number is not great. Um, I don't want to, you know, to, you know, be too bearish here and, you know, get people to panic or anything like that. Um, and I think it's important to take it with a kind of, you know, you take a look back, you take a step back and you kind of think of what 
the potential implications could be for you um, as an individual, but an investor as well. And it's just a good reminder to have that emergency fund available. So three to six months of your expenses, if anything bad happens, you at least have a little bit of cushion to rely on. You know, if you're investing, just making sure that the companies in your portfolio, they're in good financial position. If there is hardship and there's some headwinds that they'll be able to weather those and then come out stronger and be on the lookout for potential bargains because the market is notoriously short-sighted. So they may see companies that will be really impacted by a potential recession in the coming months and be down on it just to realize that a few years later, they're actually stronger than ever and you were able to buy them at a discount. This is why I strongly believe you cannot have extreme home country bias, like only owning businesses exposed to the Canadian economy or only owning business exposed to the Indian economy. If you're in India, for instance, I think that there's a huge risk because some of the problems here on the macro basis can be isolated to just one country. Um, and, and I think that that could be possible here with Canada. Look, I mean, our economy and our consumer confidence has become so tied to housing. It's, it's undeniable. It is absolutely undeniable. And look how fast rates have moved. Look at the people getting squeezed. Look at people getting their trigger rates up for renewal in the next quarter or, or, or 16 months. Like things could get ugly and, and it's okay to be cautiously optimistic and bullish on Canada in the long term and also okay to be pretty pessimistic in the short term because uh, I think that's where I am. I think that's where I sit. But these things are nuanced. They just talked about how it's pretty awesome to build tech companies here, but it's also <laughs> an economy that's extremely tied with co- consumer confidence and housing. So, you know, do your own research, do your own thoughts here, but for the love of God... Don't go full, full home country bias. I think that's a bad way to go. Yeah, and I think there are companies that will allow you to get a lot of exposure internationally that are, you know, listed in Canada. But I had the discussion on Twitter, and I'm sorry, like, I don't remember who it was with, but they're saying, oh, you guys talk about home country bias, but there's a lot of companies in Canada that are international. And one of the companies... Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and one of the companies this person mentioned was TD. And I'm like, okay, that's fair, but there's still an outsized reliance on Canada for TD. I mean, more than half of their profits or around half actually comes from their Canadian operations. So you're still massively concentrated to Canada when you compare when you think the U.S. economy is like 10 times bigger than Canada. So you're still outsized in terms of concentration in Canada. So you have to make sure, yes, companies that do have exposure, but some companies are still extremely reliant on Canada. Yes, they may have international operations, but when 50% of your, you know, your operation is Canadian, I mean, you're still very heavily weighted to Canada. Yeah, if we're talking about 50% of you know, operating profits or uh, net income or even revenues, like that is significant exposure. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, no, exactly. So I just wanted to make that point. I mean, it also just goes to show, make sure you know the businesses, uh, you know, as business that does commerce internationally, does it's they're not all the same. Yeah, like don't hear what I'm not saying. There are so many like 
Canadian listed stocks that are actually just like international businesses. Yeah, exactly. There are tons and tons of examples of this. Like think of Kushtar, think of Waste Connections, uh, has huge, huge business in the US. Think of uh, Constellation or, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. Not to be confused with uh, maybe Canadian Tire that has like, you know, 100% exposure. So, you know, these things are nuanced. Yeah. And there's also less choice, right? If you look at a certain sector, you may have one or two that are international or zero in some sectors. So you have to keep that in mind where if you look in the US, um, you'll have at least more choice of the type of business if you're, if you're looking at uh, exposure in a certain sector. Now, to go on to the bank earnings, so feel free to chime in, Brayden, because I have uh, quite a bit of content here. I, I went down the uh, the rabbit hole of looking at these bank earnings. Probably <laughs> took me like seven or eight hours just uh, digging into stuff. And it was, I mean, it was pretty fun to look at. So for people who have been living under a rock and not really looking at the bank earnings, so the overarching theme here is that it was not a great quarter for Canadian banks. There was no way around it. Lower profits and higher provisions for credit losses. That's a good way to sum it up. Before I continue though, if you're investing in Canadian banks, I think you have to make sure you know the bank well. And if you've never if you own a bank and have never looked at the supplemental financial information, uh, you should do that you know, when you hear this podcast, basically, because that information is extremely important. It gives you some really good information on some important ratios and important more like not like, you know, more kind of detailed into segments uh, and really some useful information. You may not fully understand all of them, but, you know, when I started learning about banks, I did not understand all of these either. I would see a ratio or I would see a certain metric and I would look it up to see what it was and then you kind of figure out which one's more important than the other and then you can kind of zone in what makes a bit more sense uh, now like I so I did a fun little graph took me maybe a, like an hour or so so I just took the loan loss provision or credit losses so I'll use that you know interchangeably here so provisions for credit losses from Q3 2021 up till this most recent quarter and it's for those who are on Patreon on join TCI, you'll see that it's definitely trending up. So it's a little graphic. I did nothing too fancy, but you see that in Q3 2021 up to Q2 2022, for the most part, it was quite low. Even some of the banks were releasing some of these provisions that they had taken during the pandemic. And as we started getting into Q3 of 2022 last year, there is a steady increase overall in those provision for credit losses. And it hit some pretty high levels with Bank of Nova Scotia having the highest one followed by TD and CIBC so they're all above 730 million for this quarter alone any thoughts on that before I continue Brayden dude I love this like data you put together this is super helpful yeah I got that from the supplemental information <laughs> No, I know. I just you yeah. put it all in one place for every bank. Yeah. So yeah. it's great. Yeah. So I was just fine. I mean, the one thing I would say against these kind of metrics. So these are just absolute numbers. So it, it doesn't look at it as a percentage of the loan portfolio. So you have to keep that in mind because clearly, you know, if you compare it to like a decade ago, banks are bigger today. They have bigger loan portfolios. So, you know, uh, 800 million. 
10 years ago is not the same as 800 million today. So I think that's just important. But I just thought it was an interesting little graphic for people to still see the increase and how banks are actually putting some money aside for those provision for credit losses. Looks like a sine wave because they <laughs> had to put a bunch of they had to put it's not pictured here on the graph, but they had to put a bunch away in uh, in 2020 and then it, it was in the negative in 2021 when they put it back and then now it's increasing again. So interesting. Yeah, exactly. And for those who want to see the graphic, you can just look me up on Twitter at fiat underscore iceberg. I posted that maybe uh, less than a week ago. So just look at my recent tweets and you'll be able to find or it. Or go to jointci.com, watch the video and well, of uh, you just shared it on yeah. the beautiful screen. You know, exactly. <laughs> Now, mortgages are becoming a real problem for some banks, and I have another chart. I did not pull this one together, so it was posted by uh, at Finance uh, Lance or Finance Lot. Um, so he posted the amount of banks that have amortizations longer than 35 years so people will say oh okay like why is that an issue or some people might say uh how is uh, an amortization available for more than 35 years well in most cases mortgages can only be amortized up to 25 and sometimes 30 years i'm not a mortgage expert but that i know and this means that these are variable fixed payment mortgages and for a lot of these only the interest is paid on the mortgage and some not even the full interest amount, which essentially means that your mortgage is growing. It's not good. It's starting to be quite a problem. There's four banks that are in this situation. And I'll show again for the uh, joint TCI members. So you'll be able to see the graphic here. So you have TD that has 23%, CIBC 25%, BMO 30%, and Royal Bank at 23% of their outstanding mortgages that have amortization longer than 35 years so that's only possible when the banks have uh, variable rates with fixed payments so only these four banks is my understanding were offering that product scotia and national bank were not so they had variable mortgages but the payments actually change as the interest rates went up so this is really an issue because these people that have these mortgages my first instinct here is that if they were able to increase their payments, they would have done it already. Okay, most of them. Maybe some not, but most of the people, if they could increase their payments, they would have done it. So what happens here is this is okay right now, but when the term comes up, typically, right, most people take five-year term. When the five-year term comes up, they'll have to renew their mortgage, but get it back to 25 years, let's say, of amortization. So they're going to have a big, big jump in payments. And that can be a bit, a bit of a ticking time bomb, I would say, for these banks, because we can assume that a lot of these mortgage holders will simply not be able to afford those increased payments. Um, so they're going to have to either decide to sell or look at some potential other options with the banks. But it, it's a pretty big problem. But the Office of the Super Financial or Superintendent of Financial Institution, OSFI in Canada, they are looking at that and potentially making sure that the banks will no longer do that in the future and looking at the banks that do offer it to have higher capital requirements, which means more cash on the balance sheet in case something goes wrong with these loans. Wow, this is fascinating. And, and the, the scary part about these mortgages are actually growing, probably, most likely. Yeah, or at least not going down. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's. Uh, I mean, we can we can o- <laughs> we can only speculate, but that's an educated guess. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's not great, and something to definitely follow if you own one of these banks or you're thinking of starting a position. And now to get back to the actual earnings, I'm not going to do all of them because it would take way too long. So I decided to do Royal Bank, which was the only bank with a decent earnings report. Uh, CIBC, <laughs> which was, in my opinion, probably the worst, and then Bank of uh, National Bank, which had a a decent earnings report, not great, but um, you know it's. A smallest bank as well so rbc uh the first note to mention here is that the competition bureau of canada approved rbc's takeover of hsbc canada um i believe like i said rbc is the only bank who beat earnings um beat analyst estimates which is you know it's pretty impressive compared to the other banks net income was up eight percent to 3.9 billion versus last year earnings per share was up nine percent to two dollars 73 provisions for credit losses was slightly up versus q2 but almost i would say it's um almost flat so it was 616 million i believe 600 million the previous quarter so pretty much in line with the previous quarter and their loan loss ratio which is that percentage compared to their full loan book uh, that went down one basis point to 0.29%. Uh, so kind of good news there for uh, for RBC. Net interest margin was down three basis point to 1.5%, uh, but it's been pretty stable for them over the last two years and their CT1 ratio, which is just uh, kind of liquidity available in case of something happening that's unforeseen. That was a 40 basis point, which is good to 14.1% compared to Q2 of this year. So overall, pretty good report from Royal Bank. But where it gets, um, let's just say juicy or not great, is definitely CIBC. So I've been pretty bearish on this one, especially since uh, for for some time, I would say, but this quarter kind of sealed it for me. Net income was down 15% versus Q2 and 14% year over year to 1.4 billion. Provision for credit losses rose to 736 million, up 68% versus Q2 and almost 3X from last year. And they were in part because of their impairments of their U.S. office loan portfolio. So that was a big part of the big jump here. Analysts were predicting around 500 million, so significantly higher than what analysts were predicting. Their loan loss ratio is currently at 35 basis point. That's up six basis point compared to the previous quarter and tripled that of last year during the same period. Now for extra context here, typically for CIBC, uh, kind of more normal one is probably, uh, you know, 20 basis to 25 basis points but it reached a 64 basis point in q3 of 2009 so yes i went back to q3 of 2009 because i was looking for the great financial crisis to see where it peaked and from what i could tell that's where it peaked so it's just for people to gauge it and they now have 55% of their loan portfolio in Canadian mortgages or home equity lines of credit. And $30 billion worth of fixed mortgages will be renewing in the uh, next year, most likely jumping from around 3% in terms of their mortgage rate. So people renewing those fixed mortgages to 6% or higher. So it's going to be a pretty big shock. And hopefully these people have put some money aside and started getting prepared for that. And the net interest margin was down slightly. Um, something to keep an eye on because it 
it is kind of showing a downward trend here for CIBC. And one slight positive is that deposits were slightly flat versus Q2 and up 4% versus last year. So all in all, not great for CIBC. Any comments here before I go uh, to National Bank? $30 billion worth of fixed rate mortgages will be renewing in the next month. No, sorry, next year, uh, in the next year. Okay. So that was a typo. I, yeah, I said it. Okay. I said it in, uh, you know, in the next. I was like, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah. No, it is in their, but, I believe, their investor presentation. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's got a, it's a lot's, lot's going to be in the next month as well. In the next two, three months, four months, it's a lot's coming yeah. up. Uh, no doubt. Wow. This is, um, this is an interesting. <laughs> investor presentation slide because <laughs> most of them I like, you get I like excited your choice about. of word yeah interesting yeah <laughs> uh nothing more to add here nothing more yeah and for the joint tci listeners you'll see i pulled uh, from their investor presentation um i'll hand it to cibc they do a good job for the investor presentation to the slide deck um it's not you know a substitute for the supplemental information but uh, this graphic that I have it, they actually have it always. It's their credited portfolio breakdown. So it's worth five hundred and thirty eight billion. And like I said, fifty five percent of that is tied to Canadian housing. So um something to to keep in mind. Um now I'll finish up with National Bank. So National Bank, uh, like I said, not as bad as CIBC, but also not great. I think a bit below analyst expectations here. They don't have any 35 plus year amortization products. Net income was up 2% to 835 million. Earnings per share was flat at $2.36. All segments were slightly up in terms of net income, except the financial market segment, which was down 27%. Provision for credit losses were up 31% to $111 million. And their loan loss portfolio is actually, loan loss ratio, I mean, is actually quite low. So it's only 20 basis points. Um, for new listeners, I know I haven't mentioned earlier, so 20 basis point would be 0.20%. So that's 20 basis point. It was actually up 4 basis point versus Q2 and double that of last year. So it'll be something interesting to keep an eye on. I don't know if they just have a more conservative lending practice as a whole. So that's why they have a lower provision for credit losses as a percentage, but uh, something to keep an eye on. And one thing that could be a plus with National Bank is they've kind of grown as a primarily Quebec-based bank, although they are growing outside of Quebec. So I think their exposure to uh, housing in Ontario and BC, which is, tends to be the most, uh, you know, highly priced and, you know, unaffordable in Canada, is definitely lesser than other banks. So that's something to, to keep in mind for, for National Bank. And obviously not having these extended mortgage amortization is also a good thing. I want to move on to NVIDIA here. Lots of discussion here about Canadian banks, if that's okay. With oh, you go for it. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, too much, uh, too much info for yeah. me. Let's move on. <laughs> no, it's, it's not that, no, no. just for the sake of time yeah. here. Um, now, this is a bit older here since NVIDIA posted their Q2 on August 23rd. There are a few things here discussed to discuss with the hottest stock of the year. Firstly, this is a 1.2 trillion in market cap stock now, which is nothing short of exceptional. The stock is up 238% year to date 
and 260% on a trailing 12 months. This is how nuts public markets can be, even with very liquid mega cap stocks. Um, what's that whole like uh, the market is very efficient thing, Simon? What's that about? From yeah. the fall of 2021 to the fall of 2022, NVIDIA stock lost 65% of its value. That was last year. Uh, then it is four and a half X since. So if you're looking for examples of the the manic Mr. Market, look no further. Now, first off, congrats. If you've owned this for a while, I know many of the listeners have for years. They recognize the GPU and the data center thesis and, and Jensen having that dog in him. Excellent work. Uh, you know, feel free to give me one of your millions. Much appreciated. Record revenue, Simone. Of thirteen point five billion for the quarter, which is up one hundred and one percent from a year ago. So a clean double on the top line revenue. Now here's what makes this impressive: is that eighty eight percent revenue growth from last quarter, from Q one to Q two, the top line grew eighty eight percent. That's not year over year. That is quarter over quarter. So this is absolutely bonkers growth. The demand for GPUs required for for AI is off the charts. They've basically announced partnerships with every major tech company that you can possibly imagine. The whole industry's leaning on them for this hardware. So now here's what's becoming the entire story. So if you, if you look here on on Stratosphere, if you're on that Pro subscription, you check out the KPIs and the segments data. It makes your life a whole lot easier. Because we track them one by one. Now, gaming, professional, let me see here, gaming, professional services, auto, OEM, and other was a mixed bag of like up 20% or down 20% on their segments. So you look across their business and you're like, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, it makes sense. You have cyclical demand for chips. You have decline in growth from OEM and other. You have um, the professional visualization down 23% year over year, up quarter over quarter, but down year over year. Nice little rebound from gaming from mass, like multiple quarters of, of declining revenue. And guess what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> the ga- The data center business is on fire. It grew 171% year over year from this time last year. And quarter over quarter, it grew from 4.2 billion to 10.3 billion for that segment. So more than doubled during the April ending quarter to the July ending quarter. So that is nothing short of exceptional. Now, the question becomes, and, and for, for people who own the stock or thinking about owning the stock, is how sticky is this influx of demand? The, the word on the street has been, buy your GPUs or you won't get them. Now, this was either a beautiful marketing trick from Jensen and NVIDIA, because clearly they're fulfilling the demands, you know, like if... If there was really this much of a crunch to get the GPUs, you wouldn't see the actual revs go that high. Now, maybe 
they're collecting this ahead of time of of delivering it. But then that becomes like a booking and not booked revenue. So there's been all kinds of questions around the accounting of this online and 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 I have a lot of questions as well. I'm not I'm not saying that they're doing something shady like some people have been, but I, I really should dig into this. Or they are geniuses and just made everyone try to buy as many as they can uh, bef- before they run out. Now, if demand cools after everyone sprints to get these GPUs, and this segment shows some weaker growth with the, the data center business, where the stock is trading today, valuation-wise, you can get wrecked from here if you don't see this segment continue to fire on all cylinders. If there is even just a stumble, so you, can, you could have amazing numbers in a vacuum. But when this thing is trading at nosebleed multiples, just be careful because if there is any stumble in the thesis, if there is any pulled forward growth, we've seen what happens in the last two years and you have pulled forward growth and hard comps, the market punishes you. And I'm not saying that I'm bearish on the stock or anything from here. Just be very aware of that, that you could be facing some mega drawdown if this stump, if this segment, not even the business, if this segment stumbles at all. I'm bearish on this stock. <laughs> no, no, I mean, look, I think it's um, I think it's a great company, but I think one argument can be made. Obviously, if demand goes down, like you said, but the other argument is that when you have something as profitable, you invite competition. Um, other competitors see this, and I can bet you that uh, let's take an AMD or even like companies like Apple that now are you know starting to get into the semiconductor game. Well, they have been for quite a few years now. Um, I can see them looking at this and saying, "Look, why don't we throw some money at this and try to compete in this space?" I'm not saying they will necessarily be able to do that, and I think probably me- short to medium term. It probably won't happen because it will probably take a little bit of time. But Nvidia uh, has such a head start, yeah. and they're, they've been the pioneers in this specific type mm-hmm. of GPU that works so well for these supercomputers that are acquired for for AI. Yeah, but I, I think you know, give it five to ten years, and I think you're they're not going to be the only game in town. That's my my prediction. Is just because yes. It does take time to my, you know, to your point and what I was saying. But when you're that profitable, you just give competitors an extra incentive to really get into that because they want to they want a piece of it. It's that simple. And I think I don't I'm not into, you know, uh, you know, I know a decent amount about uh, semiconductors, but I don't know GPUs all that well. But I will say that one that I'm sure will try to um, catch up is AMD. AMD is definitely the one that they should be uh, making sure that, you know, they stay ahead of. Yeah. And valuation on a go forward basis is actually contrary to what you might think. Fairly reasonable. Next trailing next 12 months, you have an EV to EBITDA on forward EBITDA of 37. So that is not absurd for a question for a company growing this fast. However, that's got to 
everything has to be perfect for that to be true, <laughs> for that to be right. And so that's the risk you run. You run, and and maybe the the company continues to execute, and it just keeps getting you know more and more dominant over time, and really solidifies their moat. Uh, that may is that very mel very well may happen for this business. Just be prepared for a a fat drawdown on the stock. That's uh, that's my hot take. Yeah. Do you know if their alder chips are manufactured in Taiwan? Most of them must yep. be. Huh. Yeah. So that's yep. a risk right there. Like you don't know what's going to happen there, but um, you know it's a non-zero chance that there's a military conflict in Taiwan. So I'm not saying I'm not trying to raise alarm bells, but that should be part of an inf- investing thesis because if something does happen, uh, it'll make it much harder for Nvidia to to make those chips. So um, you know that's just an example of things that could happen that. Maybe the market is not fully pricing in. Maybe, you know, it should be, uh, you know, 30 in terms of valuation to price that risk in. I'm just kind of throwing numbers out there. But uh, it just goes to show that there are different things that can happen. And that's one of them, especially with China slowing down and not to be alarmist here. But traditionally, uh, powers that, you know, are entering periods of instability, um, these tend to be the times in history where they can get aggressive. So I'm not saying, again, I'm not an expert in geopolitics or anything like that, but that is a risk that you, if you invest in NVIDIA and you intend on owning it for more than a year or two, uh, that's a risk you should be aware of. Now, this has been an incredible business, incredible management, incredible execution. They've had the vision for for this They've skated to where the puck has gone before it got there. It's just going to look a lot different in the future. You hinted at increased competition. And there's no way they can kind of utilize this absurd pricing power that they have right now as everyone sprints to get their hands on these things. That is going to cool off. Like it, it, it naturally will. And that's okay. It doesn't, that's not a detriment to the business. But anticipate it, right? Like that's that's the whole point of me bringing this segment up, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Is a lot of people own the stock. A lot of people are very excited about the stock, rightfully so. A lot of people are very excited about the business, rightfully so. Um, but just to kind of cool expectations, they get a little out of control when a stock like this is up, you know, four and a half x in just a few months, right? It, 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 there has to be some sort of euphoria in the mix anytime that happens so just just be mindful of that thank you so much for listening to the podcast we really appreciate everyone tuning in if you want to see all the graphs that we've shown on the screen here on our monthly portfolio updates we just dropped it actually a few days ago our monthly portfolio updates for the end of august you can go to jointci.com to support the show we really appreciate it that is jointci.com see you in a few days take care bye-bye The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.